And Lord, for that invitation that is so gracious, in response to that invitation, we pray. We ask, Lord, that you will meet with us in power today, that your word would go forth by aid of the Holy Spirit with understanding and conviction and encouragement and instruction. Lord, motivate us to serve you with all that we have. And Lord, we dedicate this time of worship to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Let me encourage you to open your Bible to uh, Psalm 65. If you don't personally own a Bible, there are Bibles in the pew rack. Those are uh, certainly available to you. If you would like to take one, just take it as your own. encourage you to read it and use it. If you don't know where the book of Psalms Uh, The book of Psalms are, the book of Psalms is, middle of the Bible. So you open it up and uh, hopefully you are there. We are looking at Psalm 65. I want to give you just a little bit of background uh, to this psalm before we dive in. It's a psalm of David, the king of Israel, the sweet psalmist of Israel, as he's called. He was skillful in playing the harp. He was quite capable in singing and also in composing. And the Spirit of God spoke by David. God's word was in his mouth. And he recorded these beautiful songs, which when compiled become the hymn book of the church in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and are also the foundation for our own songs, the church, the people of God in the New Covenant, the New Testament. This particular psalm was probably written for one of two occasions. The first might be the the spring celebration in which they are looking forward to Passover and the time of their annual festival of rejoicing in the goodness of God. Or secondly, it could be a psalm written for the annual festival or the the autumn festival, I should say, that was designed for gratitude toward the harvest that God had brought in or was just about to bring in. And as you read through the psalm, you can see why it fits very well in either one of those two occasions. It appears that there is also this sense that God's people had gone astray, but now they had returned to him in confession of sin and had found forgiveness. They were now reconciled and welcomed. And this psalm raises the voice of praise in light of that wonderful atonement that is offered in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are three sections to this psalm, three movements. The first deals with the first four verses, and it highlights the pardon of God. And it seems to take place in the temple. It emphasizes the God of grace and the God of mercy. Let's read those four verses. Praise awaits you, O God, in Zion, another name for Jerusalem. To you our vows will be fulfilled. O you who hear prayer, to you all men will come. When we were overwhelmed by sins, you forgave our transgressions. Blessed are those you choose and bring near to live in your courts. We are filled with the good things of your house, of your temple. 
So it's the focus on the pardoning of God who forgave all of their sins. And they, the worship, the praise that is offered in the temple of God because of God's mercy and his grace. Here God is pictured as redeemer. The second movement, verse five through eight, emphasizes the power of God. Now the sphere is the dominion, kind of worldwide sovereignty of God and goodness of God seen everywhere. You answered us, verse five, with awesome deeds of righteousness, O God our Savior, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the furthest seas, who formed the mountains by your power, having armed yourself with strength. You stilled the roarings of the seas, the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the turmoil of the nations. Those living far away fear your wonders. Where morning dawns and evening fades, you call forth songs of joy. So here's God's dominion among the nations, his power on display. He is now creator God, not just redeemer and savior, but creator. His might is seen, his sovereignty. The last movement, beginning with verse nine and to the end of the psalm, speaks of the provision of God. Now the scene seems to be the valleys and hills of Israel. The emphasis is on God as provider. He's the God of plenty. He's the God who showers us with goodness, and this fits into the harvest theme. Verse nine, you care for the land and water it. You enrich it abundantly. The streams of God are filled with water to provide the people with grain, for you have ordained it. You drenched it, you drench its furrows and level its ridges. You soften it with showers and bless its crops. You crown the year with your bounty and your carts overflow with abundance. The grasslands of the desert overflow. The hills are clothed with gladness. The meadows are covered with flocks and the valleys are mantled with grain. They shout for joy and sing. And all creation lifts up its voice in praise to God, the provider. But when I read this psalm, there's one verse that just jumps out of the psalm and grabs hold of me. Has that ever happened to you? Sometimes it's a different verse. But the one that has jumped out and grabbed hold of me is one I find most amazing. It's startling. Too wonderful for words. A concept beyond my comprehension. It's something I cannot ignore, but I cannot totally understand. It's the magnificent verse two. Oh, you who hear prayer, to you all men will come. I memorized that verse years ago in the old King James. Oh, thou that hearest prayer, Unto you, unto thee, shall all flesh come. It's a great verse. Another way to translate it and to kind of put some slightly different variations in the Hebrew words, more of a paraphrase, is to say, O you who answers prayer. Because the idea of hearing incorporates the idea of responding with an answer. All humanity will come. In fact, all humanity will must come to you. 
As that verse has grabbed hold of my heart, I feel that maybe the best thing that we can do as a church is to study the whole subject of prayer. And that's why we're beginning a series called Let's Pray. Let's get serious about improving our prayer life, our prayer life individually and our prayer life corporately. Let's get serious about God's promises and the wonderful privilege we have of praying. As a staff, our monthly meetings when we have our devotional times is is being given over to prayer. Different staff members are leading devotionals on the whole subject of prayer. We're offering different books to encourage one another. We just want to get serious about prayer. Because we might neglect many things and still go forward as a church, but one thing we cannot neglect is prayer. By the way, prayer is really nothing except the empty hand that holds the sovereign God. Prayer is the channel. Prayer has no power in and of itself. Prayer is only as good as the object, the person that we pray to. But prayer is that vehicle that draws us into his holy presence and causes God to intervene in the normal human affairs of life to work miracles and do astounding things. Prayer is amazing. And this verse startles me. Because it talks about the nature of God and how we need to respond to him. You know, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 says, pray without ceasing, right? Nowhere in the scripture does it say sing without ceasing. Nowhere in the Bible does it say work without ceasing. Nor does it say preach without ceasing, and you're glad of that. But it does say pray. Apparently, God is trying to reorder our priorities. Pray without ceasing. In the Old Testament, when the Hebrew people had desecrated the temple of God and the prophet Isaiah was railing against those who should have been loving God and worshiping God from a pure heart, he reminded them that the temple, my house, is called a house of prayer. Isaiah 56. That was such an important statement that when Jesus came in the New Testament and he saw the Pharisees neglecting the word of God and the truth of God, abusing the worship of God, he said, my house, the temple, shall be called a house of prayer. That was so important that it's repeated in all the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it's something we need to take seriously. Some churches are known for the fact that they teach the Bible and that is good. Others are known for the fact that they have wonderful relationships and fellowship and that's important. Others are known because they're great at sending out the gospel both locally and globally and that's vital. But how many churches are known because they're houses of prayer? They pray in that place and when they pray, God acts. Should that not be something we desire with holy passion? Because it's what God tells us. He wants the church to be and to do the way he wants his church to be characterized. That place is a house of prayer. And so that's why we're starting this series. Let's pray. Let's get serious about improving our prayer life. 
I want to take this one verse, verse 2, and basically divide it. Look at the two halves of it. First of all, to notice, to recognize that the first phrase is really revealing God's character, the recognition of his name. You who hear prayer. What a delightful title. It's a title that honors God. It's a title that he has taken for himself. God is the one who's inspired the sacred text. He's the one who caused David to write these psalms. David said, the spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was in my mouth. And God said, David, this is what I want you to write so people know how to think of me when they pray or how to think of me when they come to worship. I am the one who hears prayer. In the New Testament, when the disciples of Christ came to him and said, teach us to pray, like John the Baptist taught his disciples to pray, Jesus said, okay, here's lesson number one. This is the one thing I want you to think of. When you bow your head to pray and conceive of the one you're praying to, this is what I want you to think of. Our Father, who art in heaven. Is God transcendent? Yes. Is he far above us? Absolutely. Is he sovereign in power and majesty? Is he God of justice and judgment? Absolutely. But when you pray, think of God like this. My Father. Abba. The one who loves me so much, he sent his son to die in my place. The one who longs, passionately longs, for me to come into his presence and talk, pray. What a title. It rightly reflects his passion, his love to hear the prayers of his children. For it's in Proverbs 15:8 we read these words, the prayer of the upright pleases him. The prayer of the upright is his delight. You want to put a smile on the face of God? Pray. Pray. It's the name that he longs to be called. By the way, I think you ought to have a right to decide what name you are called. Now, parents give names to kids. You know, they have a kid grow up and we say his name is going to be William and the parents say, we're not going to call him Bill, we're going to call him William. But then the kids get involved and they give him a nickname And they might start calling him Bill. And then he gets older and his parents say, no, it's William. And then he gets older and he wants to be more dignified and appreciated and respected. And so he says, call me William, not Bill. I think people have a right to say what their name should be. I think God has a right to say, this is what you need to call me. The God who hears prayer. God of judgment, yes, but the God who hears prayer, that's what you need to focus on. I delight in it. I love it. It puts a smile on my face. It's a title that honors me. It's my heart's passion. Malachi chapter 3 says God never changes, so it's still his passion. The New Revised Standard translates that first phrase, O you who answer prayer, for hearing and answering are one and the same. Think about it. What an amazing thing. This God who could do anything he wants to do delights to hear us pray. Can you conceive of that? I mean, really conceive of it? 
This title implies a lot of things to me, and this list won't be exhaustive, merely suggestive, but let me mention a few things to you. Because he is the God who hears prayer, number one, he is living, he's alive. You know, idols are dead. Every other God is non-existent. It was in the Old Testament when Isaiah said, you make your idols. You, you get a, a, a log, a piece of wood, and you, you fashion it. You carve it into some type of statue, and you overlay it with gold, and you set it in your prayer room, and you bow down to it, and you talk to it. Isn't that insane? And you expect it to answer you? It can't answer you. It's wood. And by the way, if you want it to go to another room, you have to pick it up and carry it. Your idol becomes a burden to you. Isaiah said, but Jehovah is the one who carries you. He's been carrying you since your infancy. Get your priorities right. There is no other God but Jehovah God. He is the true and living God. Idols are non-existent. And yet you and I often try to fashion our own God. How pitiful is that when the God who is is perfect. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he's living, and I don't care what men may say. I, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For the one who comes to God must believe that he, what? That he is, believe in his existence. And you must believe that he rewards those who diligently seek him. That's what prayer does. You diligently seek God. The only way you can do that is really in prayer. Obeying his word in all of its parts, but coming to him in prayer. And if you diligently seek him, he will reward you. So you must believe, first of all, that God is, and secondly, that God is good. And if you seek him in prayer, he will respond. Do you believe those things? If we say we believe those things, then how does that match with our lack of prayer? How can we conceive of a prayerless church or clergy or Christian? If this prayer thing is so amazing and the God of heaven bids us come and he is alive, how come we don't pray? Oh, I'm sure there's a lot of answers we could give. It's, we're intimidated by prayer. Let this verse eliminate intimidation. I don't know that I'll have the right words to say. God's not concerned about the words. He's concerned about your heart. I have nothing to offer him. That's perfect. He loves to show his strength and weakness. I think other things are more important. Ah, that might be the real reason. Not only is he living, he's eager. This phrase, the one who hears prayer, shows his willingness, his eagerness, his readiness, his longing and passion. It implies that he has all power to answer our prayers, right? When you pray, Verse 5 says, he answers with awesome deeds. He has all the power needed to answer any prayer that you and I could offer. 
He has all knowledge. Isn't it amazing that God can hear people praying all over the world at the same time and he never misses a note, never skips a beat, never loses a word, catches it all. You ever tried to listen to multiple conversations at the same time? The older you get, the more it drives you crazy. God's been around a long time and he hears every prayer. By the way, anytime you pray, and you think you're by yourself, you're not because you're jumping into a prayer meeting that's already existing with people all over the world. You're jumping into prayer in progress. And you join in with the hosts of the redeemed made righteous by the blood of Christ. He has all knowledge. He also condescends to our level. He hears our prayers. Again, he's transcendent, but he comes down. He's far above us, but he wants to be intimate with us. He sent his son to be like us. And he says in the book of James, you draw near to me and I will draw near to you. Who says that? The God of the universe. The one who did all this creating. The God of pardon and power and plenty. He wants to condescend to your level. I find that astounding. You know, you and I like to get to know important people. That's why celebrities have such a strong gathering. And we'd love to spend time with them and chat with them, you know, meet them after the play. All of that intrigues us. You ever try to get a hold of the president of the United States? Write him a letter? If you do, you'll probably, if you get a letter back, if you get a letter back, it will be written by one of the subordinates. He doesn't have time for you. You say, I'm going to go to Washington, D.C. I'm going to walk past the guardhouse. He's my president. I want to have a word with the president, you say. See how far you get. He comes to speak in Lansing, and you say, I'm going to hear his lecture, and then when he's here, I'm going to get up and talk with him and see what a distance all his bodyguards create because the president doesn't have time for you. He's a person. He's a human being. Oh, he has a town hall meeting to kind of show that he's interested. And I'm not just talking about this president. All presidents are like this. And they show some interest, but they're not all that interested in you personally. They have too much on their plate. But the God of heaven says, you pray and I'll hear. I long to listen to your words. And there's no one like Jehovah God. And he's always attentive It's the God who hears, not the God who heard. It's the God who hears, not the God who shall hear someday if I get everything right. It's the God who hears, present tense, always attentive. Wake up in the middle of the night. I think I'll pray. God says, I've been waiting. In fact, I woke you up so we could spend a little time together. Glad to hear from you. The name implies all of that and more. What an astounding recognition, revelation of who he is. It is his name. It is his nature. It is his glory to hear prayer. Now notice the second half of the verse. This is the reaction of the whole world to this truth. To you, all men will come. The effect of God's nature is that he attracts. 
there's this magnetic pull. All people are drawn to him. And it's true. All over the world, the readiness of the Lord to hear prayer opens the door of access to all kinds of people, and everyone is drawn. Notice the word all, without discrimination. Jew, you say the Jews are the favored people of God. Yeah, they they were, they are. It was under the Jews that the law was given. It was under the Jews that the prophets were given. It was through the Jewish family that the Messiah came. But the Jews rejected the Savior. And they're in a period of time in God's providence where not many Jews are coming to faith in Christ. It's the time of the Gentiles. And one day the Jews will be brought back in in an amazing revival. They're the people of God. They're the honored people of God. But if they don't put their faith and trust in Christ, there's no hope for them either. All people without distinction. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile, so you're included in that group. Male, female, old, young, rich, poor, intelligent, or like the rest of us. doesn't make any difference. All people will come. And the old King James uses the word flesh. Unto you shall all flesh come. The word flesh signifies frailty, weakness. There's this universal sense of our own sinfulness. And that's why we must come. We must come to someone who has more power and wisdom to someone who has love and mercy and grace, to someone who can right the wrongs of the world and forgive our deepest sins. We must come. I like the way the New Living translates it. All must come to you. The NIV says all will come to you. You say, which is it? And I say, it's both. All will come. Isn't that encouraging? One day every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The book of the Revelation says all the nations of this world will one day become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever and ever. Psalm 86 and verse 9, all nations you have made will come and worship before you, O Lord, and they will bring glory to your name. Oh, they will come. (laughs) They will come. All nations. And that's why we don't need to be discouraged because in the end, God wins. We've said this over and over again, but it is so true. We get discouraged when we look at the church in the 21st century and we see how she is weak and in some places dissolving and in other places corrupt, imperfect. And you say, what's going to happen to the church? I'll tell you what's going to happen. Jesus is going to build this church and the gates of hell won't stop it. The gates of hell will not prevail. I have a little app on my iPad from Major League Baseball. I pay a little bit of money and I can watch every Major League Baseball game after it's done in about 15 or 20 minutes, a condensed version of the whole game. 
Now, I'm the type of person that if I'm watching a sporting event and I really like one of the teams, I get too emotionally involved. When I, would go, when I do go to Spartan football games, I don't yell because then I can't preach Sunday morning. I lose my voice. And when they're not playing well, I get angry, I get mad, I get carnal. And so it's not the best thing maybe for me to watch the game if I'm too involved. But after the game is over and I know who's won, it's no big deal. I, I never watched the Tigers game if they lost. Why go through the agony? You know they lost. I don't want to waste 15 minutes of my time watching how they lost. But if they won, I watch most of the Tiger games after they're done, 15, 20 minutes when they win, which means I haven't been watching too much lately. <laughs> but even if they're losing and it's the ninth inning, I don't care because what? I know they're going to win. I've seen the final score. And the same is true for the Christian. We've read the last chapter. We've read the last book called the book of the Revelation. And we know that Jesus wins. And that encourages me. All nations will come. But then this other translation, all must come. You must come to God. If you want to live, there's no other person that you can go to. There is no other God. There is no other name by which you can be saved except the name of Jesus Christ. You must come to him. You will come and you must. Why would you come? Look at the psalm. Verse three, come for forgiveness. Overwhelmed by your sins, he forgives. Verse four, come for good things. He will fill you with good things. Come for answers to prayer, verse 5, and the display of his awesome deeds and his amazing power. Come, verse 5, because he is our Savior. Come because he is the only hope for the ends of the earth. Come because he's the God of plenty and abundance, and he wants to fill your life with good things. Come. You must come. Come in faith, but come Come in humility, but come. And when you come, you'll never be cast out. Your prayer will never be rejected. And it doesn't matter if you know how to pray, just talk to God. Prayer was not designed to make us guilty. Prayer was not designed to be reserved for only a few theologians who with code language can pray words no one can understand. Prayer is not to be the display of someone standing in front of a group that prays so long the rest of us go to sleep. Prayer is to be real from the heart to God who is real. Spontaneous, conversational, in faith that results in our anxiety being lifted and his will being accomplished. Prayer is an amazing thing. What a comfortable title ascribed to God with universal consent from all the world. Oh, thou that hearest prayer, all humanity will come 
and must come to you. And if all humanity will come, why not you? And why not now? There's no better way for South Church to grow than for you to improve your prayer life and for me to improve mine. To get serious about this fact that God is and that he is the one who delights to hear my prayer and he's longing for me to pray and when I come, the blessings abound far beyond my comprehension. Prayer ought to be a top priority in my life every day simply for the blessings I get but added to it for the glory that it gives. When Solomon dedicated the temple in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, he prayed this prayer, Now, my God, may your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayers that will be offered from this place, this temple. That was 2 Chronicles chapter 6. 2 Chronicles chapter 7 We have some familiar words in verse 14. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, I'll hear from heaven, forgive their sin, heal their land. We often use that talking about America, and I think in a secondary sense, that's okay. But the primary sense is for the people of God to get themselves right. The people of God in the Old Testament are Israel. People of God in the New Testament, the church. The better application is, oh, church, my people, who are called by my name, if you'll hear from heaven, if you'll pray, I'll hear from heaven, forgive your sin, and heal your church. Not the country, that's secondary. First, it's the church. You want revival in the church, then repentance needs to come from the people of God. And the first thing we need to repent of is our sin of not praying. Did you know what the very next verse is after 2 Chronicles 7, 14? God says, now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers in this place. The thing you asked for in chapter 6, I'm going to do in chapter 7. After I promised, if you repent and believe, I'll answer. Now I'll wait to see what you will do. And that's the question. What will we do, O church? What will we do? He was a young man in Ireland who fell in love with a young girl days before they were to be married. His fiance drowned. Heartbroken, he decided to join the military and he went through military school. But before he graduated, He got an illness that caused him to miss so many classes he had to step out of school and he never graduated. He left his homeland in Ireland and went to Canada where he worked with the poor. And as he worked with the poor, he fell in love with another girl and they were engaged, but before they were married, she got sick and died. You think you've got problems. And Joseph Scriven sat down and wrote these words. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Get this. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. And oh, what needless pain we bear. 
all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. So, let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to get serious about improving our prayer life. Each one of us, and if each one of us will commit to growing, developing a healthy, regular prayer life, because it's what you delight in, it's what you long for. It's a privilege like no other on the face of this earth. Lord, if all of us do that together, this church will rise with the tide. And then people will say, that place is called a house of prayer. And then perhaps your name will be glorified like it's never been glorified in Lansing. And then perhaps people will come to Christ like they've never come to Christ before. And then perhaps our hearts will be filled with a joy like we've never known. Teach us to pray. O thou that hearest prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.